You just missed a home run. I missed out on an incredible deal you were offering at Pella Windows and Doors of Wisconsin. It just started. You can get beautiful Pella Windows and pay no interest for four years. Visit PellaWI.com. Live from the Annex Wealth Management Studios, this is the Jeff Wagner Show. The AccuNet Mortgage Talk and Text Line is open now. Give us a call at 855-616-1620. And now, WTMJ's Jeff Wagner. Good afternoon, Wisconsin. Welcome to the show. Lots of ground to cover on today's program. If you follow me on Twitter, at Jeff Wagner 620 we've got a number of links to various stories that are up there. <laughs> the, the one that caught my attention yesterday afternoon, and, and it's in the category of, what a bunch of fakers. And See, at some time, I, I understand that all politics is, well, there's a degree of entertainment that's supposed to go into politics, and you want to you stage things, and you want to do stuff to get attention. Well, if, if you want to see one of these stunts that, of course, you get the mainstream media to buy into, it, it happened yesterday. What you had is you had a number of members of the squad, you know, the, the AOCs of the world and, and some of the very, very liberal members of Congress. And what they did is they decided they were going to um, hold a, an abortion rights protest. And so what they did is they went to the steps of the Supreme Court and they were kind of loitering around and ultimately they, they ended up the police, the Capitol Police, got called and were asked to, to move them out. Okay, that that that's fine. Everything's all well and good. So, and again, if you follow me on Twitter, it's at Jeff Wagner six twenty. The AOC, who is of course the the sort of ringleader for this whole thing, the the Capitol Police are are escorting these these people off off the steps of the court. They're they're moving them around. And they they've told people you have to disperse, and they're refusing to disperse. So they're they're moving them off. Um, AOC takes the position, I guess, that she wants to pretend that she is being removed forcibly in handcuffs. So with the cameras whirling, she puts her hands behind her her back and, you know, links her wrists so that if you just see this picture, it looks like she's being taken away in handcuffs. Well, the truth of the matter is... She wasn't in handcuffs at all. She was actually gently being escorted um, away from the Capitol steps to the uh, by the by the Capitol police. What they did is these members of Congress they actually instead of handcuffing them and throwing them in some police wagon or something, what they did is they walked them under a shade tree, <laughs> um, and then they they called for like water. You know, we, you know you're, you're going to have to wait because we're going to have to process you and figure out what we're going to do with you because you were trespassing, etc. But so here we want you to stand here. Just wait while this we work this out. We've got cold water coming your way. And then what we'll ultimately do is move on. I mean, the whole thing was the, the stunt to try to, again, get the pictures you want that the mainstream media is going to guppy on. And I guess my perspective on this entire thing is, okay. You know, if you want to stage this theatrical event, fine, but it's not exactly like 
well, this isn't like, you know, you're facing down the civil rights movement where you're facing down tear gas and police dogs and things of the like. You're being gently walked to a shade tree to await being served water while the police decide what they're going to do. And I think they ended up giving everybody like $50 tickets or something like that. But while they're standing under the shade tree waiting for the bottled water to be brought to them, um, of course, you have a number of these protesters who are, you know, again, the media guppies on this and they're holding their press conferences and things of the like. But I guess my question, and I raised this on the Twitter account is that does the cookie left really think that stuff like this moves the needle on public opinion? I mean, pretending to be handcuffed while being gently walked to a shade tree is like I said a minute ago, not exactly like facing police dogs and tear gas. I do, however, hope the water they were served was cold enough. If you haven't seen this, you can check it out. It's on my Twitter account. It's at Jeff Wagner, six twenty. All right, let us start with a lighter story, but I think it is an interesting one. And I've got a link to this video as well up on, on Twitter. Now, in Los Angeles yesterday, last evening, they had, they had the All-Star game, right? The All-Star baseball game. And before you have the All-Star baseball game, there's actually there's a couple... There's a couple days of events. On Monday night, you had the Home Run Derby, and there's all sorts of of other events where, like, the all-star players will kind of walk red carpets and stuff. And there's opportunities for the fans to interact with the the players. You know, that's the whole idea. Hey, this is really cool. Now... I guess there, there's two ways of looking at this. And again, if you follow me on Twitter, it's at Jeff Wagner 620. I, I've got a link to the video of this. I will describe how it's described um, in, in the media. The headline is grown man, grown man fights children for autographs. So you have this, this line that is queuing up to try to, again, get access um, to this. And there's a, a red carpet that the stars are walking. So while the, the, the athletes are, are going this red carpet to get into the locker room, the, the video that I have up there shows a guy who looks like, well, I'm bad with ages. He could be 50. I guess he could be in his 30s, but he, he could be... More likely, my guess is he's closer to 50, wearing a San Diego Padres hat. And and he's in this crush with a bunch of other fans, but including a bunch of children, um, teenagers, maybe, you know, tweens, stuff like that, who are all lined up and they're trying to attract the attention of these players as they're as they're moving past. Well, this guy and you can see it, he wants he wants to get close to Justin Verlander, who is, of course, one of the all-star pitchers. So if you watch the video, what you see him doing is he's reaching over a young kid in a, in a Dodgers hat to try to you know, push past the kid who's actually kind of in front of him. He's trying to reach over the, this kid in this Dodgers hat to try to you know, get Verlander to to take his ball and to sign it. And so the the kid, he's, who again, looks to me maybe 12 years old or something like that. The kid, he's, he's sticking out his hand holding a ball. He's trying to get an autograph of his own. So the adult is upset that the kid is trying to stick his hand out. So what the old man does, 
He jostles the kid. He, like, elbows the, the kid trying to push him out of the way. And there, there's no video with this, but it looks like he kind of curses the kid out. Um, <laughs> and, it's, and you're like, okay, you know, what, what's going on here? Now, we've seen situations like this before, including some local stories, where you have the, the, the folks that, like, the professional ball hawks, who you know locate they they collect the foul balls and they collect home run balls and things like that hoping they're going to find something of value so you have these adults that are running through the stands pushing knocking over kids in an effort to try to get a ball that they might be able to sell in this particular case you've got this guy who's pushing his way over climbing over children in order to get you know hopefully to get Verlander to autograph his ball which I do not believe he does our number is 855-616-1620 that is the Acunet mortgage talk and text line I was discussing this last night with some people my take on it three well it's actually two words pathetic jack wagon I mean who pushes over kids to try to get this autograph now I was talking to somebody last night, and I don't know if they were just trying to be the devil's advocate or whatever, but the argument was, well, you know, th- this guy, these autographs are valuable. This guy, maybe he was a huge Justin Verlander fan. He's got every right to try to get his autograph as well, and it's kind of like Lord of the Flies. If, you know, if you can get the attention of the player, who cares if you push past the kid? 855-616-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. All right. Pathetic jack wagon or just a, a fan who's trying to get an autograph and if he's got a push over and you know, punch up, uh, not punch, but, you know, elbow a couple kids out of the way to get it. You know, it, he, he's a fan. He's just as entitled as the kids. 855-616-1620. Where do you come down? We discuss in a moment. The candidates are set, and the race to challenge Governor Tony Evers is on. Join us this Sunday night at 6 o'clock for the Republican gubernatorial debate moderated by TMJ4 News' Charles Benson and Shannon Sims. Here from Tim Michaels, Rebecca Clayfish, and Tim Rantham. This is it's this Sunday night, 6 o'clock, on News Radio WTMJ. Also, I, I've made a decision. I, I typically do not have guests on this program. I, I make an occasional exception, but it's... Other people have lots of guests. It's just the way I run the show, and it's it's worked for me for 20-some-odd years. Um, for the Republican gubernatorial debate, I have reached out to Rebecca Clayfish and Tim Michaels and offered them each the opportunity to come in for an in-studio interview. Um, I Rebecca Clayfish, we, we've got her book. She's going to be in Monday from 2 to 3 o'clock in the afternoon, and we're going to have an extensive conversation why she is running, why she thinks she's the best candidate to beat Tony Evers, why she is different than Tim Michael. So she's going to be in at 2 to 3 o'clock on Monday afternoon. Have not heard back from the Michaels campaign yet, but I expect that they will do it. We'll try to get them in sometime. Well, it has to be either this week or next week because I'm leaving for my listener trip to Alaska on August 2nd, so that'll be the last time before the primary. I don't come back till the 10th. All right, our number, 855-616-1620, which is the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Um, this is, I hate the phrase viral video because it's such a cliche, but th- this is this video has gone viral. Yesterday at the All-Star Game, as players are walking the red carpet to get to the locker room, there's all these kids, basically as kids, that are lined up with baseballs trying to attract the attention of the, the players to get off autographs there's this one guy wearing a san diego padres hat who's 
in kind of like the second row who's pushing all these kids out of the way. He's elbowing him, trying to stick out his baseball, so hopefully somebody will sign it. Uh, somebody said, oh, Jeff, you got to understand, he's he's got just as much right to do this as the kids do. I think he's a pathetic jackwagon. 855-616-1620 is the Acunet Mortgage talk and text line. Jeff, ugh, no one should be pushing and shoving. I'm not anyone famous, but I would hope that if the person whose autograph they were seeking would notice somebody doing that, they would say, hey, I saw what you did. You're never going to get my signature now. Jeff, no excuse for pushing anyone. That being said, I've noticed the trend of ball players increasingly ignoring adults respectfully requesting autographs. I collect signed balls and had one Brewers player sign balls for every kid asking, then walk away ignoring me and another adult who waited patiently, ball in hand, regardless of age, we're all fans. Well, I guess I, I got a couple of things to say about that. Yeah, I understand that. But I think, first of all, I think the players understanding that there is a value to their autograph. A lot of times they become suspicious when you've got the adult pointing the baseball to them. The question is, is this really a fan or is this somebody who's going to take it and I'm going to see my signed baseball up on eBay the next day? Now, I understand that that can happen with kids, but at the same time, I think there's a greater chance if it's adults. Secondly, I guess I think you know, baseball is still a kid's game. I, I guess I, I really do. And I, I'm always, I've never gotten a foul ball myself. I go to a lot of baseball games. I've never gotten a foul ball. But I, I'm always impressed when, if it's an adult that gets the foul ball, they do what I think I would do, which is quickly look around and see if you can find that child, that, that kid, that teenager, and give them the ball. Because the truth is, it's going to, I think, mean more to that kid than it does to the grown-up. 855-616-1620. Jeff, I would use a different word to describe this guy. My goodness, give me a break. Um, Jeff, I went hunting with Ted Nugent. Any adult who tries to get his attention gets nothing. He always goes with the kids first. Yeah, I, I think that that's, um, you know, an element that's out there at all. Jeff, watch some of the old guys standing around the Fister Hotel waiting for players to arrive. They want like 30 things signed. It's all about money for them. Kids should always have first access. Now, I understand that that's an, an oversimplification, but I mean, I I get it. I mean, you, you want to sign for the fans. That That's what you're, you're doing. I mean, if, if you're selling, if the idea is, hey, somebody wants to pay for Justin Verlander's autograph, well, Okay, you know, then Justin Verlander should get paid for it if if it's a commercial sort of transaction. And like I say, I understand that you sign that ball for the ten year old kid, and there's he he could give it to dad, and dad could sell it. I understand there's always that potential, but it's much more likely when you have the, those twenty somethings or the thirty somethings that are looking for the free autographs that then they're going to turn around and sell. And I don't mind the players taking the position that, hey, buddy, if if this is if this isn't for you as a collector, but you're trying to make money off of me. Well, I, I'm going to sign with the kid instead. 855-616-1620. Jeff in Fox Point. Jeff, good afternoon. Hi, Jeff. I think this guy's out of line. He should have been ejected from the game or wherever he was. And um, I think he deserves all the ridicule he's getting. Because if he had enough money to go to that event, he probably had enough money to purchase an autograph online. And there are a lot of opportunities to do that now from athletes and many other celebrities. Yeah, I mean, I, th thanks for calling. Again, I guess it's it's just, but I think what, 
See, I don't mind grown-ups asking for for autographs. And if you're if you're in a situation, I, I just I don't do that. I've I've made a couple exceptions. A huge Bob Euchre fan, and you know, every once in a while when I've run into Bob, not in a work sort of setting, I, I've always said, "Can I, you know? I know people are huge fans. Can I get a signature?" And he's he's been gracious enough to gracious enough to do it. Robin Yount was the same way. Ran into Robin Yount, and I asked for a couple balls, but but I wasn't going to sell them. I said, "I just want you to know the, the, these are actually these are these are where they're going and, and things like that." And I mean, so I don't have a problem under the right circumstances with a grown up going up and asking for an autograph. But if you look at this video, that this guy he's he's elbowing the kids out of the way so he can get to the front and get his ball signed. And if if I were the pitcher, if I were the person who somebody was seeking the autograph in that fashion, and I saw this guy pushing his way over the kids, it would kind of be, buddy, not only am I not signing your ball now, I will never, ever sign your ball in the future. Jeff, this man is an absolute jack wagon. Nothing wrong with adults trying to get autographs, but to bully a little kid, disgusting. Most likely, he just wants the autograph to sell the ball online um yeah jeff i have to say i disagree i think that an adult just as much as a kid can want to have a ball signed the adults are the ones buying the the kids the tickets they spend a lot of money he could have been a fan since they were six years old but um you know and said maybe he wants it as a souvenir sorry not with you i i guess it's one thing if you want to go politely ask somebody to to sign an autograph that that's fine but the story of this is this guy is pushing and climbing over children in order to, you know, get the ball signed. I don't think there's any way that any reasonable person can justify it. And I know he didn't get this autograph, and I hope he didn't get any other autographs as well. And I'm sure at some point in time the guy is going to be publicly identified because his now face is all over the Internet. And, you know, he's going to have some explaining to do at some point in time why he thought it was appropriate to climb over little kids to try to get an autograph. And that's fair. I know there's all these reports out today about how the Menominee Tribe, which is kind of based out of, out of the Shawano area, is is partnering with the Seminole Tribe in Florida at, and Hard Rock Hotels with the idea of trying to bring another casino, this time to, to Kenosha. Now, th- this has been around. This this has been going on for about 15 years. The, the group originally was trying to take over the Dairyland Greyhound track to put a casino in there. Ultimately, that's failed. So now the plan is we're going to buy land um, that's a little bit, this case, the Dairyland Casino would be to the east of, of the freeway of I-43. They're going to buy land uh, just slightly to the west of I-43, convert it to tribal land, and then you know put up a casino there, a smaller casino than was originally planned. But that's the idea. It's difficult. See, here's the problem, and it's difficult for me to, to even want to go too far into the weeds on this because I just don't see it happening. It has nothing to do at all with the merits of whether or not we should have another uh, you know, casino in that particular location. I actually thought that that would be, I'm a free market guy, and I think from the free market perspective, 
it would be a good idea. It would have been a good idea to have another casino in Kenosha. I think that would have put pressure on the Potawatomi to maybe become you know more gambler friendly. And I'm not saying that they're not, but th- the competition would have in fact been good. But see, th- this was this was presented back when when Scott Walker was the governor, and in 2015. He ended up shooting down the proposal to allow the the uh, Menominee to, to again do this partnership with the, the I think it's the same tribe essentially they're, they're back and go into Dairyland. The problem then was that it's the compact, the agreement, the contract that the um, Potawatomi signed with the state of Wisconsin back when Indian gaming was first authorized in the early 1990s. The Potawatomi's gambling compact with Wisconsin says that the state would have to reimburse the tribe for any losses linked to a Kenosha casino, as well as refund payments the tribe has made to the state in exchange for the exclusive right to offer gambling in southeastern Wisconsin. Right, so that the deal that the state struck with the Potawatomi, and this was back when Jim Doyle was the governor years and years ago, and you can argue whether it was a good deal or a bad deal, but it's the deal that was signed gives the Potawatomi exclusive rights to, you know, gaming in southeastern Wisconsin. That's just what the deal says. And if you were going to allow another casino, Indian casino, to come in, it would cost the state just a fortune. In 2015, I'm just look. I went back and looked at this. The Walker administration estimated that those payments, the payments that the state would be on the hook for, um, if if they allowed another casino to go in, could run into hundreds of millions of dollars. And the Potawatomi also argued that they wouldn't have to make future payments to the state if the new casino went through, since their guarantee of exclusivity would would be gone. Now, this this was the problem, and and just from a dollars and cents perspective, it, it I think Scott Walker correctly concluded, regardless of how he felt about another casino, that this just did not make sense under the terms of the agreement. The Potawatomi have been, and I understand this, this is not a criticism, they have a monopoly on gaming in southeastern Wisconsin, and they have been very, very aggressive in enforcing that. They will fight a casino in Kenosha tooth and nail, and and it makes sense to them because... With the exception of, like, Las Vegas, the, the general rule of gaming is you don't drive past one casino to get to another. There's no question if you put a gambling casino off of the interstate in Kenosha, you are going to have a huge impact on the, the Potawatomi business because – you know, people from Kenosha County and Racine County and maybe even southern Milwaukee, it, 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 then the choice is going to be, well, do we drive up to Potawatomi or we go down to this new casino in, in Kenosha or whatever? It, it's going to siphon, I, I don't want to say enormous, I don't know, but it's certainly going to hurt their business. There's no way in the world that the Potawatomi, Potawatomi would ever agree to this from a business perspective. It would be business malfeasance. So I guess, I mean, the, the, the one option is the Menominee, the Menominee tribe and the Hard Rock tribe could offer the Potawatomi X amount of dollars, I mean, pay them an enormous amount of money in order for them to voluntarily give up their exclusivity. But at that point in time, I think there's so much money that would be involved that that exclusivity is worth so much money. I, I just... 
I can't see the rival tribes coming up with enough money to essentially get the Potawatomi to release their claim. So I, I view all this stuff, again, without taking any position at all on whether it would be good to have another casino in southeastern Wisconsin, unless somebody can say what we're going to do, how have you gotten past this objection? Because the, the reason Walker correctly, in my opinion, shot it down in 2015 is it didn't make any economic sense at all because of the deal that was struck. It would cost the taxpayers would quite candidly maybe end up losing money um, by by allowing another ta- another casino to, to go into that area. And there's no way that any responsible legislator would do that. So I, I know these are the reports. Oh, they're looking at this. Doesn't this sound great? Here are the drawings. Wouldn't it be wonderful? That that all might be fine. But, you know, if it, explain to me how you're going to get past the, the legal rights that the Potawatomi have to exclusivity because it seems to me that that is a complete and total non-starter unless, again, there's some deal that the uh, Menominee tribe is going to strike, but I just that that's never happened in the past. This has been floating around for 15 years, and candidly, I can't see the Potawatomi giving up their exclusivity. It just it would make no sense to me unless there's a lot of money on the table, and I'm not sure that that's the case, especially given the fact that the gambling environment is getting even more competitive around here with the casino in Beloit that's going in. There's going to be a casino in Waukegan. You're going to have casinos in Chicago. So the competition is increasing more and more. And for the life of me, I don't understand why the Potawatomi would be inclined to give up the exclusive territory that they have for a casino that's going to then chip away at a chunk of their business. How big a chunk, whether it's 5%, 10%, 50%, don't know, but it's certainly going to chip away at a big chunk of their business. So I understand this is the story today, this is the headlines, but the question is, okay, how are you going to get past this exclusivity provision that has killed other efforts in the past to put a casino down in Kenosha? And until you can explain how that's going to happen, I, I just, it's tough to get too excited about this. All right, when we come back, the DA's office issues a statement on the El Rey shooting. Stick around. All right, the Milwaukee County District Attorney's Office has just released a statement in connection with the Saturday, July 9th shooting at the El Rey grocery store that resulted in the death of Anthony Nolan. Nolden. He was the security guard and Luis Lorenzo. Lorenzo is the convicted felon who had jumped bail on pending drug charges, um, and and he was shot by a security guard as well. The bottom line is there will be no criminal charges in this case. I want to read you a good portion of the DA statement, and then we're going to open up the phone lines and we're going to get your reaction to it. On Saturday, July 9th, 2022, Anthony Nolden was employed as a security guard by Marshall Public Safety and working at El Rey, located at 916 South Cesar Chavez Drive. Luis Lorenzo entered the store carrying a shoulder bag, which is contrary to store policy that prohibits bags in the store due to thefts. By the way, this is not in the statement, but my understanding is he was also wearing a ski mask in July. In any event... It is believed that Nolden, the security guard, attempted to deny Lorenzo entry to the store because of his bag. Lorenzo moved past Nolden further into the store where the two men engaged in an argument. Nolden then called his supervisor, 
Enoch Wilson and asked for additional security assistance at the store immediately. Lorenzo then proceeded to leave the store, but before doing so, squared up and made body movements towards Nolden as if he wanted to fight. It is believed that Nolden then administered pepper spray at Lorenzo. So you've got the idea. Lorenzo ran out into the parking lot while Nolden walked after him. Enoch Wilson, that's the supervisor, arrived at that time, saw Nolden following Lorenzo, and ran after Lorenzo. According to Wilson, that's the supervisor, he then grabbed Lorenzo and tried to direct him to the ground. Lorenzo was reaching for something in his bag during this time. Wilson got Lorenzo to the ground, lying face down with Wilson straddling him. Lorenzo then produced a handgun and blindly fired a shot upward, which struck and killed Nolden, who was nearby. Lorenzo then turned the gun towards Wilson and fired it, missing Wilson. Wilson then stood up from Lorenzo and fired his gun toward him, killing him. Under Wisconsin law, self-defense using deadly force in this situation required that Wilson must have believed that there was an actual or imminent unlawful interference with his person by Lorenzo, that he must have reasonably believed, believed that the amount of force he used was necessary to prevent or terminate that interference, and that Wilson could only use deadly force against him if he believed such force was necessary to present, prevent imminent death or great bodily harm. In this case, Wilson entered the situation after being summoned by his co-worker, Noel to provide immediate assistance. Upon arriving and observing Lorenzo running from Nolden, it was reasonable for Wilson to believe that Lorenzo needed to be detained. Once acting on that belief, Wilson did nothing more than struggle with Lorenzo and direct him to the ground. The situation changed when Lorenzo produced a gun, fired it towards Nolden, killing him, and then fired towards Wilson. Under these circumstances, Wilson's conduct fell within the scope of the law of self-defense and defense of others. Our number, 855-616-1620, which is the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. So the district attorney's office says no basis to issue criminal charges against the, in this case, the supervisory security guard, who, as they are trying to detain the man, pulls out a gun, shoots and kills one of the security guards, fires at the second security guard, misses, and then is killed when the second security guard returns fire. 855-616-1620. Did the DA's office get this right? We discuss in just a minute. 855-616-1620. 855-616-1620. Mike in Illinois. Mike, did the DA get it right? Yeah, I believe he did. Um, obviously, the person was acting in self-defense. The only question I do have is, why did they follow him outside? I, I don't know if they're just trying to hold him until the police gets there or... Or what? Um, that's the only question that I have. Yeah, no, and Mike, thanks. That, that's actually that. That's a very good question. To me, as I look at this, that there's there's two issues here. Um, first issue is is this a legitimate exercise of, of self defense? And, and I think it's a no brainer. I mean, here here you have a guy who you know w- without even getting into the, he's a fugitive who pulls out a gun and he's a felon. He's not supposed to have it. He he shoots. He's shooting blindly. He shoots and kills one security guard he then takes a shot at the second security guard misses in this particular situation it is a clear-cut case of self-defense so from a criminal charging perspective that that to me ends that clearly this is the right decision now to your point that the family the family of this guy is already talking about how they might be pursuing
pursuing lawsuits. And that's I guess that's that's what the question is. The question is going to be from a civil, not a criminal perspective. After he, he goes into the store, he's armed. He's got the knapsack. He creates the disturbance. Um, but then he, he ends up leaving the store at that point in time, should they have just have let him go. Now, my, my guess is the argument's going to be that clearly the interaction he had in the store and the confrontation with the guards gave the guards a basis to detain him, you know, while they called the police. So that's what they're going to argue, that their, their effort to detain him was, in fact, legal, and then all this stuff went from there. The argument I suspect the family is going to make is, well, no, once he left the store, they should have just let him go, and, you know, none of this would have would have ended up happening. I think from a legal perspective, and I guess you're going to have to find out more facts, my sense of this matter is going to be, you know, ultimately, that the guards are going to be within their rights to detain him based on his conduct in the store to wait for the police to arrive to to see if there's an arrest or something. And so if they're within their rights to detain him, then from a civil perspective, there, there's no question either. But that's going to be something that's going to have to, I think, be sorted out moving forward. Having said all that, though, from the perspective of, of is this a legitimate exercise of self-defense, uh, it, it seems to me it, it's pretty clear it, it's a no-brainer because none of this happens. Happens if the guy doesn't go into the El Rey grocery store, you know, armed with a loaded handgun, carrying a knapsack that you're not allowed to carry in the first place. And you might say, why aren't they allowed to carry these? Well, because it says they have, you know, theft issues with this. Jeff, anytime a bad guy who tries to kill people ends up getting shot, I don't have a problem. Um, nobody else in that scenario deserves any charges at all. Jeff, the DA got it right. Um, the security supervisor ended the threat. He had already been shot at, and his colleague was already down. I think it's the right decision, you know, in connection with this. Yeah, I think that's that's kind of how I, I look at this from a legal perspective. You know, from a criminal perspective, it's clearly the right decision. You know, if there's a lawsuit, the like I say, the argument's going to be, well, once he left the store, they, they shouldn't have followed him. They should have just let him go. Then the question's going to be, did they have a basis to detain him for the cops? My guess is the answer to that question is going to be yes. Also, the, the guy's background, the fact that he was a felon carrying a firearm that he shouldn't have, the fact that he was a, a fugitive from charges, I think that would all play into stuff and would probably be relevant to be introduced. So you've got, you know, that sort of situation. Then we have somebody saying, do you think Lorenzo also shot in self-defense? No, 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 he didn't. That's the... That's the the thing, you know. If if Lorenzo, the the person who was shot, is involved with a a struggle in a struggle, you're not allowed to pull out a gun and shoot somebody unless you have a reasonable fear that you're going to be killed. You can struggle back, I guess, but you know he's the one that pulled out the gun and started the entire thing by uh, firing randomly. So no, that that's not a self defense case from his perspective. In any event. You can mark the tape on this, because I don't say it that often, but John Chisholm's office got this one exactly right. Live from the Annex Wealth Management Studios, this is the Jeff Wagner Show. And now, WTMJ's Jeff Wagner. 
Good afternoon, Wisconsin. Welcome to the show. So glad to have you with us. Wisconsin State Fair, and if you're a regular listener to this program, you know I'm a huge fan of the State Fair, starts two weeks from tomorrow. Um, and we will be broadcasting live from, from the fair, I think probably every day of the fair. Normally I'm out there every weekday. This year, as I've been saying before, we, we've got our listener cruise to Alaska coming up. We leave two weeks from yesterday and come back on, on the 10th. So I'm just going to be, I will be out at the State Fair I'm only going to be broadcasting, though, the, the last two days, the 11th and 12th, assuming that there's no hang-up and getting back from the, the Alaska trip. But but that is the plan. But, I, I'm, matter of fact, I was already saying to, to my wife, I said, well, we've got we've to make arrangements. Let's get some friends. Let's go out. Let's wander around the state fair, either that Friday or maybe we'll go back on that Saturday or something like that, because I, I enjoy the fair that much. Not going to quite be the same because this will be the first year in a long time without uh, my dear friend and the former head of the State Fair, Kathleen O'Leary. She kind of retired. Retired. That's the word that I would use. She retired after last year's fair. So, you know, some new people and stuff, but that's fine. In any event, whenever you stage a major event, what, what's... There's all sorts of things that, you know, you have to be concerned about. But certainly in 2022, given the nature of the world, you you have to be concerned with with security, right? You want to have a safe environment and a welcoming environment for people to come. And and as we saw with the Waukesha Christmas Parade, there – it's always a challenge to end up doing that. So, you know, the State Fair has announced some of their security enhancements that they're going to do. Apparently, they're going to put in, you know, some vehicle barriers, which will make it would make it more difficult for somebody to do presumably what happened at the Waukesha Christmas Parade. They, they've got a rule on bags. Bags must be 9 by 10 by 12 or smaller with certain exceptions that are there. There's going to be bag exp- inspections. Fairgoers are going to have to walk through a metal detector that are going to be in place at every fair entrance. So, you know, and they're also publicizing what you can and cannot bring in, all of which are good ideas, I think. One of the things that they are continuing from last year and maybe years past. And this is what I want to talk to you about. The rule is that fairgoers under 18 years of age who are entering the state fair park after 6 p.m. must be accompanied by a parent or guardian 21 years of age or older. And proof of age is required. So they are continuing the policy that they implemented that essentially says... You know, nobody, you know, under 18, no minors unescorted at the fair park after 6 p.m. Our number is 855-616-1620, which is the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. All right, let's tee this up. You know, they did this in response to some issues they had with crowds and fights and things of the like. And at the time they did it, it was relatively, well, I don't know controversial how controversial it was, but I know a number of people thought that this was unfair. You're discriminating against the, these kids. You know, um, most of the young people who are coming to the state fair aren't looking for trouble. Why would you put in this particular requirement? Our number, 855-616-1620, which is the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. What do you think about this policy? During the day, unescorted minors are fine, but anybody, any minor entering after six o'clock must be accompanied by a parent or guardian over the age of 21 and you're going to have to prove your age all right is that an unnecessary step 
or is that a good policy? Are you glad to see they're doing it? 855-616-1620. I'll tell you where I come down on this, and we will discuss in just a moment. In addition to a number of new security measures that they are implementing regarding like limits on bags and searches of people going into the state fair. State fair this year is continuing its policy of no unescorted minors under the age of 18. If you want to go to the Wisconsin State Fair and you want to enter after 6 p.m., you must be 18 years of age or older. If you are not, you must be accompanied by a parent or guardian. Um, Proof of age is required. I think that that is an absolutely great policy. I mean, just an absolutely great policy that are doing this. Jeff, I'm assuming it's you're asking a rhetorical question. Of course, it's a good idea. Well, I don't know. There were some people that might argue, no, this is this is discriminating against young people. And, you know, you were, were assuming that all these kids are going to be troublemakers by allowing them onto the grounds, you know, and then I, I mean, I have a texter pointing out, well, there's a flaw in this policy. Somebody can come down. Unaccompanied kids can come in at five o'clock and they will be allowed to do it. And, and that's that that's true, but I think what State Fair is trying to do with this, and I think probably their numbers back this up, is that the, the big concern with the problems they've had is when you have the unaccompanied minors coming down after dark, and then everybody swarms onto the midway and you have all these different problems. Yes, it is true, I guess, that you could have a bunch of troublemakers that come in at 4 o'clock in the afternoon and then just stay, because my understanding is, and I'm pretty sure I'm correct, they're not going to make a sweep of the grounds trying to find you know, any unaccompanied 15-year-old who came in at 3 o'clock who might be there at 7 and then remove them. They, they, they don't do that. But I think their big concern is, look, we, if, if somebody's been there all day, they're, they're not the ones causing the problems. What we're trying to avoid is, like, the gate's getting bum-rushed by, you know, a whole bunch of, of kids, you know, at 8 o'clock at night and then, you know, creating the problems. So I guess that's the rationale for this. And candidly, I think it's just a great idea. Jeff, by the sounds of this area and other urban cities alike, it has a high juvenile delinquency problem. Um, in essence, they've become a liability with the type of crimes they'll cause now. Well, I think that that's it. Requiring a parent to be in the vicinity at least um, provides some sort of security, right? And that, that, that's the other thing. This isn't a perfect policy. There's no question that if, um, I don't know, you have, you have the uncle, it's supposed to be a parent or guardian, but you know, who can, who can tell that for sure? You have the uncle or you have the dad that brings, um, a bunch of kids down and lets them, I don't know, kind of run wild on the fairgrounds while he goes and sits in, at a beer tent or something, right? There, there's no guarantee that you're not going to stop the problem. But I think, and I believe the thinking is, if you've got adults that are there that are accompanying the kids, there's going to be less likelihood that you're going to have large numbers of unattended adults running wild, uh, unattended juveniles running wild. And by the way, I also understand that you can have problems that are caused by you can have the the 23-year-olds that you know get into a fight or have too much to drink or whatever. So I understand that this isn't a perfect sort of thing, but to me it makes eminent sense. You know, you, we always say okay, parents, do you know where your children are? And especially in today's day and age when we see more and more of these teenagers who are 
committing worse and worse crimes and getting involved in all sorts of activities they shouldn't. I think this policy makes eminent sense in an effort to try to, again, control access to the grounds and make sure that the grounds provide, and this is what State Fair is all about, let's have the safest possible environment for all the people that go. Look, you want to have a good time. You want to have fun. You want to see the animals. You want to take advantage of all the different displays. You want to eat all sorts of stuff on a stick. It's all great to be able to do that. And the last thing you want to do is worry that, hey, you're going to be there and you're going to have a bunch of like 16-year-old troublemakers that are running, you know, stealing purses or trying to do whatever they're going to do or figure out ways to get beer or whatever. Jeff, I think it's a great idea. My wife and I left early last year because of crowds of young kids dropping constant F-bombs and acting like complete jerks. That would be jack wagons on this show. The State Fair is supposed to be a family event. People who attend should conduct themselves accordingly. Right. No, that's... um, that's the whole idea that, that's behind this. And again, it's a reasonable restriction. And I understand there's some people that get all sorts of heartburn about this because they think, well, you know, you're discriminating against these kids and you're assuming everybody's going to be a problem. Um, no, no. What they're assuming is we're just looking at the numbers. We're trying to have control. And candidly, I don't think it's unreasonable to say to 16-year-olds, you're welcome at the state fair, but you've got to have an adult with you. So... Kudos, I think, to the State Fair for doing this. They're continuing to try to be reactive, which is you know proactive instead of reactive, which is what it's it's all about. And I think, you know, for I don't know, maybe I wouldn't have felt the same way if I was 16 years old. Come on, mom, just you know, drop me and my buddies off and drop us off at the fair, and then come back and pick us up at 11 o'clock at night. I appreciate if I was 16 years old, I would have probably resented the idea that you had to have a parent or guardian that went with you. But you know, as we say, Wagner's rule of life number one on this program: life is tough. Get a helmet. There is a story in back in the news. Um, and I have a link to it. If you follow me on Twitter, it's at Jeff Wagner 620 about my old high school. And it, it's I will tell you, as, as a graduate of Nicolay High School, it, it is the, the way the school administration handled this story years ago is just an absolute disgrace. And it's something that candidly, I, I think, makes a lot of us who are Nicolay graduates just just angry. I went to Nicolay's, of course, in Glendale. I went uh, there. I graduated in 1975. So you can do the math. Nicolay at the time um, and then in subsequent years was recognized as a, a big college prep school. And in particular, the math department was viewed as as one of the best in the country. And the math department was run by a a guy named David Johnson. Now, this, I I would just tell you, going back to the early 70s, early and mid-70s when I was there, there were always rumors that that Johnson was um, a very odd guy. And there were always, I don't know how else to describe it, but there was always this, this speculation about, you know, what's going on with him. But Johnson was a, a powerhouse. He ran this math department. He had Nicolay on the map because of its math program. Um, also, 
Johnson, he, he ran like the honors math thing. He also ran a number of after school activities that if you wanted to go to these Ivy League schools, if you could be a host, which is, you know, essentially glorified ushers. But he selected the people that, that got to be this. He controlled all this stuff. You know, if, if you wanted to, if you were a host, which was something that was, was important big, I guess, if you're going to put it on a college resume back then. He also had this, this ran this magic club. And it, it, again, it was something for, it was a big thing, again, for college resumes. But but Johnson controlled this with a, a, a really, really um, tight hand. Well, all right, what started coming out is that in addition to running the math club and stuff, Johnson was a pervert. And there, there's just no other way to, and I have I have since these started coming out. I've actually talked to people that I went to school with who have their own stories about this, who were reluctant to share them at the time. But there's now been a 65-page lawsuit. Uh, Johnson, after these revelations came out, um, he killed himself in 2018. But why this is back in the news is now there's a lawsuit filed by a couple former students who claim they were molested by Johnson um, back in the 70s and 80s, and that the school board essentially knew this, this, the school board and the administration in particular knew this was going on and allowed it to happen. Um, and, and this is, their, their complaints detail what I have subsequently heard was, was going on. Um, no firsthand knowledge, but people I know say that they got singled out by this character. According to the complaint, the victims attended school in the late 70s and early 80s. They alleged they were abused by Johnson at his apartment where he would conduct experiments of physiology for a research project. The experiments quickly turned sexual in nature. And and I, I've heard that's what he'd do. He'd say, I'm conducting a research project and come to my office and put on your gym clothes. And then he'd like grab their legs and stuff. It was just it just it was appalling. According to the lawsuit, between seventy nine and eighty three, the plaintiffs say they told the teachers about the abuse. One teacher said they would see what they could do, but nothing happened to Johnson. In another instance, during the spring of eighty three, um, one of the kids confided in a consumer ec teacher about the weird experiments Johnson was conducting. Uh, the Teacher's husband contacted the Glendale Police Department to report the incident. Police said it was a school issue, so Nicolay was the one to handle the issue. The complaint says the teacher was approached by the administrator for the district, Dr. James Riles. According to the complaint, Riles very clearly told the teacher that it was important for her to understand that Johnson is bright and that her accusations of sexual abuse would ruin his reputation, and she was instructed not to discuss the matter further. Uh, July 13, 83, the school board held a closed-door meeting about Johnson's transgressions. The board agreed he could maintain his employment under certain undisclosed conditions. Months later, he flew to Washington, D.C. to be recognized with the Presidential Award for Excellence in Mathematics Teaching. Complaint argues board members and staff did nothing about the accusations and even helped cover them up. I, I, I take no position on any of that or, or the particular lawsuit other than to say this, as somebody who was at Nicolay, you know, during at least the beginning of this period of time, there, there is no question in my mind that this, this was, in fact, going on. And this is very, very similar. The behavior that the school allowed to go on is very, very similar to the, the types of abuse that the Catholic Church allowed to go on with some of the renegade priests for years and years and, and years. And again, I, I take no position on the merits of the lawsuit other than to say I, I 
and it, it continues, if you can't tell, it just continues to make me angry because I, like I say, I, I know people and I did, I had no idea that this was going on at the time. I mean, I remember as a student, everybody thought this guy was I, I, kind of a, a different sort of guy, but people were afraid of him because, you know, he, he held lots and lots of power because this is a college prep school and you got these people that want to go to Ivy League schools and stuff and, you know, getting into the honors math program and, you know, getting a letter of recommendation by David Johnson and having all this happen. Um, that that's all that's all a wonderful sort of thing that's, that's going on. And so he was allowed to to get away with this. And like I say, um, you know, after all these stuff came out, I, I had a couple people I went to high school with who just came forward and said, you know, that's, I never said anything to anybody. And one person I know said, well, you know, I, at the time this happened, he was a freshman in, in high school and he, he told a couple other people about this. And he said, this is really strange. And I think I should do something. And the other students said, well, hey, why do you want to rock the boat? Don't you understand that this is David Johnson? And, you know, you know, if, if he's on your side, you know, you're going to get into whatever school you want and nobody's going to believe you, and why would you rock the boat anyhow? And so this guy was allowed to get away with this for years and years and years. And it it makes me angry to the, this day. And again, I take no position on the lawsuit and stuff, but there's no question in my mind that you had school administrators who should have put the interest of the students ahead of the interest of this very, very powerful teacher. And as a result, there was a lot of damage which was allowed to be conducted. And if you want to read more about this, again, uh, the website, the TMJ4 website has a big piece on the, on the new lawsuit. But it's just, it is aggravating. It, it continues to be, at least for my high school, my opinion, the, the original sin. And it's something that for those of us who went to school, even if we weren't directly involved with David Johnson, it is an absolute embarrassment that this was allowed to continue for as long as it was. It is a strikingly bad Wisconsin Court of Appeals decision. And unless the Supreme Court reverses it pretty quickly, there's going to actually be people who die as a result of, of this. Uh, if you're a regular listener of this program or you grew up around this area, you, you are familiar with the Northridge Mall. Um, Northridge, if you grew up on the North Shore, the North Shore, the Northridge Mall was the place that you would hang out if you were a teenager in the 80s and, and 90s. And it, it was a thriving mall. Back when interior mall, indoor malls were the big thing, first there was Southridge, then there was Northridge. Northridge had had all sorts of stores. You had the, the the big anchor stores like Boston Store, and you had Gimbel's at one point in time, and you had J.C. Penney's, and you had a Sears store that was out there, and you had countless restaurants, and you had a movie theater with six screens, and then in the ring around Northridge, you had a number of restaurants. You had a big Toys R Us. You had auto dealers and stuff, not auto dealers, but like a Goodyear tire place, there, all sorts of stuff. It was a thriving place. And I will tell you, I spent many weekends of my misbegotten youth out, out at Northridge and you'd, you'd go out there and you'd hang out. A number of my friends worked at Northridge. One of my closest friends of this day worked at a restaurant called Farrell's that was, was out there. But it was a it was a thriving shopping mall that for a variety of reasons, this has complete fallen on complete disrepair. Everybody probably knows where Northridge is. It's if you imagine Brown Deer Road and, and like Seventy Sixth Street, that that's where Northridge is. Northridge, there's a lot of reasons for its decline. 
the area became less and less safe for a variety of reasons. Suburban women who were the core of the Northridge shoppers because of security concerns and other factors, they stopped going. A lot of businesses then closed, which brought even less reason for people to go. So you, you had this sort of vicious cycle. Then you had a guy named Jesse Anderson who murdered his wife in the parking lot, something like a soap opera, who murdered his wife in the parking lot of a TGI rest, F, TGIF restaurant outside of Northridge. And, and he his initial story, until it fell apart, was it was a couple of black kids or something that killed her. It's a complete and total lie, but again, it helped contribute to that perception that Northridge was, in fact, unsafe. So you had all that stuff that was, was going on. Ultimately, stores ended up leaving Northridge, and then ultimately Northridge ended up closing. Northridge has been vacant for over 20 years. It is a complete and total eyesore. There is a a Menard store that is part of that, but otherwise there's absolutely nothing going on at Northridge. Northridge... The buildings were purchased by this this Asian group with ideas that they were going to start an, an Asian trade market there. Um, that's it, it's always been pie in the sky. They, they come out, they've got these really fancy drawings, and they show them to people, and people, oh, that's really cool. Well, in giant indoor malls, nobody's building them anymore because that's not how people shop. Moreover, to actually try to build a, a giant indoor mall would cost you millions and millions of dollars. And to try to retrofit Northridge after everything that's happened would cost you even more than than that. So nobody's going to do this. It's just sitting there vacant. You had a guy that died, what, a year or two ago, an electrician who who went in. Um, He he died because he was doing some work there. The place is regularly the subject of vandalism that, that occurs. You've got people that trespass onto the land. It's regularly, like I say, a site of vandalism. And... Now, now, look, I don't know that it's arson, but I will tell you they're starting to have fires out there. So yesterday, 5 o'clock p.m., there's, there's a big fire at Northridge. Call for service comes in after 5. Firefighters are there for several hours. The reports are this fire caused extensive damage. It's in the area where the old food court was at Northridge. I guess I hadn't realized this, but um, a couple days ago, there was another fire at a different part of the vacant mall in the complex. And now people are looking to decide if, if these are connected or not. Now, I, I, I don't know, and I'm not prepared to say, I guess it's arson, that'll be the investigation. But you've got this big vacant building that's been there, and gee, all of a sudden, within the space of a few days, you have two fires that break out. Hmm, what does that tell you? I mean, again, it it could just be a coincidence that this has happened. But now you're starting to see, in addition to the the vandalism, in addition to the decay, now you're starting to see fires at this place. I mean, at some point in time, you've got to be able to say enough is enough. Now, the city of Milwaukee, to its credit, has been trying to tear this thing down. You know, they they want to raise, R-A-Z-E, tear down the, the buildings. And this Asian company that wants to, quote-unquote, build the trademark, they, they've been fighting this. And they, the, the city said, look, here, here's the, the deal. We think to repair Northridge, to restore it, it would be $6 million. I think that's conservative. 
uh, the building's assessed value is 81000 bucks. All right, now let, let's just back up here. Nobody, nobody is going to put $6 million into that space to try to restore it. The building's only worth $81,000. So the Milwaukee Circuit Judge says, yeah, go, go ahead, because the, the law says that if the cost of replacing, bringing something up to code, et cetera, et cetera, if it exceeds a, a certain percentage, that it's going to cost more than the thing is worth, that the city can go ahead and they can tear it down. The Court of Appeals, in a two-to-one decision, says, nope, the, the judge got it wrong. He was looking at what the cost to repair the buildings to be would to make them code requirement for developed businesses. But what you should do is look at, gee, what would it cost you know, to just allow it to be a vacant building, which is an absolutely stupid result. I, I just can't believe that's the law. But meanwhile, because of this, the city's been kind of hamstrung on its ability to tear this down. And now you're seeing what I believe are going to be determined to be arson fires. But at the very least, you've got fires that are breaking out. And it continues to be a blight in that neighborhood. Our number is 855-616-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. I do not fault the city. The city is trying to tear the thing down. They are being met with resistance by a couple judges who, in my opinion, got this completely wrong. But I, I think we got to talk about policy here. Don't you have to tear down that building before somebody else dies? Don't you have to tear down that building before there's another major fire which starts to cause even more damage? How much longer do you have to allow a blighted property on a huge spot of real estate in the city of Milwaukee, how much longer do we have to put up with this? And again, this isn't a criticism of the city. The city is trying to do the right thing, which is to tear the thing down. But th- this this has to happen. And, and the idea that this place can be allowed to stand for another three or five or ten years in a dilapidated building that is being vandalized and is being, again, I believe, the subject of arson fires, how, how much longer do we have to do put that up? put all up with that this building's got to be torn down and it's got to be torn down like about yesterday and then we can have the argument about what if anything goes up there um whether it's it's not going to be retail that's just not going to happen but it might be i don't know light use industrial i know a lot of people think it's a great spot for a juvenile prison i don't necessarily disagree with that but the bottom line is you, you can't allow this building to stand and court decisions to the contrary that have delayed this have done a huge disservice to the neighborhood, the community, and the overall safety of this area. 855-616-1620. Is it time to tear down Northridge once and for all? We discuss in just a moment. There has got to be a way. 855-616-1620. Sue in Cedarburg. Sue, good afternoon. Good afternoon. Um, <clears throat> we moved here in 1980, and Northridge was booming. It was the place to go. And then they had that killing, which you talked about. <clears throat> and from then on, it started going downhill. And right now, I don't know why the Chinese insist on keeping it. It's sort of like the fox arm of 
the, of the north side up here. <laughs> you know, it just uh, nothing's nothing's happening. Well, well no, and but, I, I see. Um, I don't under, I I don't understand I, whether whether they're trying to I don't know force the city to give up the litigation and pay them money so that they can then tear the thing down. I I don't know what the end game is from the the Chinese investors, other than I know they have no intention of of putting an Asian mart in there. It, it, it would just cost. Well, it doesn't make survive. any sense. No, it, it wouldn't survive. And, and you wouldn't have. You wouldn't. That's just not where you invest it. No, you're right. No, th- but isn't it? Isn't it a, just a just nothing an ap- in that corridor? Nothing on that corridor. The the um, the restaurants are all gone. Everything's gone. You know, there used to be a Steins up there. There used to be all kinds. Oh, of... Oh yeah. Everything's gone. It is not a. It is not a place to to shop at all. It's a, it's warehousing, and, and maybe they can do that with it. But you know, Menards is the only thing that's there right, right now. Right. No, thanks. And you're right. See, I mean, I, I just for people who have, have only lived in this area for the last 20 years and you drive by that you think that this was once this huge thriving thing yeah and it wasn't just the northridge angle on the on the um south side of the street there were there were shopping centers and there were a number of strip malls there there was a big target store i'm pretty sure that one's gone now too there there were all these different thriving businesses and this really was an area and look i you know we can have lengthy discussions about what went wrong there but but it's it's gone wrong and to allow this vacant building to stand for 20 years, and again, I, I mean, I'm saying it's arson. I, I'm, susp- I'm speculating that it's arson. It, it doesn't matter to me whether it's a set fire or whether it's now suddenly just starting to have a lot of other unexplained fires. But the bottom line is this is what happens when you have a, a vacant building that is not being maintained, that is regularly being broken into by vandals who are stealing copper piping or whatever. you you got to take it down, you, and you, you just it's not safe. And unfortunately, the city, which is trying to do the right thing, so far has been hamstrung by the courts. But they got to get their act together and figure out how to make this happen. Let's talk to Jay. Jay, you're on WTMJ. Good afternoon. Oh, hello there. Hi. So, yeah, I think this. I think this arsonist probably is the only reasonable answer to this property, right? I mean, the 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 city of Milwaukee has, has to their credit has tried to do this, but but here's my question, Jeff. I mean, why can't? Isn't there such a concept as eminent domain? Yeah. And can't can't the city or the state take control of this? You know, as a, as a public hazard and just just make it just knock it down. I I, I don't understand. Well, that's why a, they're not doing that. Well, I mean, well Jay, that, that's what they're trying. In fairness, that that's what they're trying to do. I mean, the the law allows them if if a building. If the cost to restore a building gets above what the building's value is, and there, there's a certain percentage, I want to say it's 50% or whatever, the city can come in and declare it a blighted. They can they can get a raise in order to tear it down. That's what they did. The, the, the thing is assessed for, what did I say? It's assessed for like $81,000, How it, It's almost staggering to me that 81000 bucks. that's what it's assessed at. So you, you've got that amount. It is staggering to me, and they say that to, to fix it up would be $6 million. Well, the people that own it are fighting that, and they got this Court of Appeals, two judges, to agree that, well, you shouldn't look at what it would cost to restore it to you know what it would be like what it was before. Instead, you should be focusing on what would it be cost to just restore it to a livable sort of building, which, which one way or another, it's crazy. The people that own this have no 
intention of putting a dime into this. Meanwhile, it continues to deteriorate, and now you're starting to see the fires. I mean, at some point in time, and again, I don't fault the city for this. They're trying to do everything they possibly can, but they got to jumpstart this because the bad guys in this situation are the people that are trying to hold on to that property with no intention of improving it and they're using i mean any they, they had to they had to switch lawyers i presume because they weren't paying their first set of attorneys i think that's why they ended up having to withdraw but they never ended up making that public but at some point in time if the if the plan for this is to try to you know force the city taxpayers to pay money to make northridge pay them money to make northridge go away just just shame shame on shame on them but the city's in a situation where they got to do something Let's talk to Bill in Racine County. Bill, you're on WTMJ. Hey, thank you for taking my call. Sure. All right. I worked on the northwest side of Milwaukee for 30 years as a teacher. And a number of my kids worked at that mall. Sure. And I did a lot of business at that mall. I did everything I could, you know, to try to help support everybody up there. And now I'm a farmer. That's okay. You discount that if you need to. But the point is, $6 million? What about the museum? How much are they spending on the museum? How big is that? And does the museum support the, this, the people and the parents and the kids from the northwest side of Milwaukee who need help? Well, I'm, 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 not, I'm not... Are you arguing that you think the city should come in and the city... The city should put the money into renovating the, the oh, I'm mall? I'm not saying that, but I'm saying somebody needs to get a little bit smarter than just trying to blow that whole thing off. I mean, there is potential there. Uh, you have community, a large community on the northwest side that needs to be supported and have support. And, gosh, uh, wouldn't Miss Cog say yesterday on the radio? I'm not sure. I forgot, but here's well, the point. Well, I mean, Bill. I mean, here, here, here's the point. I, I think what they have there now isn't working. So that's why you have to tear it down, and then you have to figure out <clears throat> what's going to be in there. Now, you, what that means, though, is it's unless you're going to put, unless you're going to use the space for a prison, which is a whole other conversation. But unless you're going to use the space for for a prison, what's going to end up happening is you're going to have to find some private developer who's interested in coming in and doing something with that. I think retail in that particular area is is a non-starter. That's at least my, my general sense. It's certainly, you know, big, giant, enclosed shopping malls. That That's not where we are in 2022. So, I, I mean, I think... Candidly, the best use for that right now, let's put aside the youth prison, that the best use for there would be like some light industrial. And maybe if you got some light industrial that was out there, maybe that would then inspire some retailers to want to invest in some of that area around Northridge to, to serve. Oh, we, we've got workers that are out here now. So. You know, let, let's let's put in a couple bars. Let's put in a couple restaurants. Let's put in a couple shops, maybe a grocery store that, that people can go to, you know, the, the, the workers. But you, you've got to get people back there. Uh, the, the idea of, well, we're, we're going to, like, keep and we're going to invest 6 or 10 or $15 million in trying to retrofit this giant mall in the hope that you're going to have people that are going to run out and do it, that's, that's just – it's not going to happen. It, it's just – it's not going to happen. You look at what's going on with um, – 
where where our station is moving, the, the avenue, formerly the Grand Avenue, and you know that years and years ago that that was it, it was in, it was viewed as, as largely a retail mall retail mall it didn't work down there that's just the reality it didn't end up working so you know now it's being reimagined and there's there's the food hall and stuff like that there's a little bit of retail but it's largely offices and residential you need something like that with regard to northridge but none of that's going to happen till you tear down the blighted building which is causing buildings which are causing huge problems and now now i mean I don't want another fire to break out and some fire fighter to lose their life on a building that shouldn't be up there in the first place. Live from the Annex Wealth Management Studios, this is the Jeff Wagner Show. And now, WTMJ's Jeff Wagner. Good afternoon, Wisconsin. Welcome back to the program. I don't know what this is, but it is not justice. Let me take you back to March of 2018, all right? Um, March of 2018. Uh, it's M&M Motors, which is in, in West Dallas. Think like Highway 100 and Greenfield. One of the owners of the, the auto dealer is out putting air in tires of, of a car, you know, that, that's on the lot. A car, a Jeep, driven by a woman whose name is Melissa Sandrone pulls out of of pulls up gets out of the jeep and shoots the man who's the shoots the owner of the, this business shoots him in in the back witnesses say she then turns with a smile on her face and drives away um she also takes a couple shots at some employees who are trying to follow her after she's shot this man in the back. They ultimately catch her. The police get her out of the car, and they find that in in this vehicle that she had, she had an arsenal of guns, she had knives, she had the book, The Art of War, that were with her. You know, when when she shot the, the one of the owners of this the store in in the back, nobody really knows what her motive for this might have been. All right, in in court though, they bring in a bunch of these psychologists who say that she's crazy, she she's psychotic, she's paranoid, she's delusional. They've never clearly identified a, a motive other than there, there's at least some speculation that this woman might have somehow gotten into her mind the idea that the man she ended up shooting was uh, involved in a motorcycle accident that, that hurt her like 15 years ago or something like that. It d- doesn't appear to be ever. It's not true. It's just that she's she's nuts. And in her, you know, like craziness, she just kind of associated this and associated this this victim, this innocent victim with the, the scenario of this. And then there's all sorts of evidence that was introduced at the trial. Just looking at what they took out of the car. Three guns, an AK-57, all sorts of ammunition, etc., etc. So, and anyways, it, it then turns out that she had a lengthy history of, of mental illness. Um, two years ago, two years before the shooting, she was in a psychiatric hospital. It, it just goes on and on and on. And clearly, this is somebody who is... I'm going to use the layman's term. She's crazy. 
She, she was crazy when she did this. So she goes to trial. Her attorney posits a defense of not guilty by reason of mental disease or defect. She was crazy. She couldn't appreciate the consequences of her action, no right from wrong, etc., etc. The judge, the Milwaukee County Circuit uh, judge at the time, Christopher D., he reviews all the records and, and he buys the argument. Right. He says, yeah, I've reviewed all these records and I appreciate that she is insane. You know, she's and again, that's not the technical legal term, but we know she's just not able to appreciate because of mental disease or defect, mental illness. She's not able to perceive and appreciate right from wrong, et cetera, et cetera. So what he says he's going to do is he says, "Okay, I am going to. All right. You got to get off the street. I am going to sentence you to a term of 38 years commitment at a mental health facility so that that's the sentence so you can get treatment and you know you can get help for this in 38 years okay the, the victim in this case says well yeah okay i mean i doesn't really matter i mean all, all i know is she shot me in the back of the head i'm lucky to be alive um, but, you know, whether she's in a mental health facility getting treatment or whether she's in a woman's prison or something, she's off the streets, you know, so she, she's not going to be a continuing danger to the community. And 38 years, okay, that, that seems like a, you know, it, she's going to spend, I think she was 45 at the time this happened, so in all likelihood she's going to spend most, if not all, the rest of her life in, in prison in some sort of confined facility. Okay, so the victim is okay with all this. This has all changed. All right, now, okay, 38 years in when the sentence was imposed in, I think, March of February, early January of, of 2019. Why are we talking about this now? Because here we are in July of 2022. So let's, let's do the math. Let's see. The sentence of 38 years in a mental health facility is imposed in January of 2019. January 2020, January 2021, January 2022, three years, July of 22, you know, three years, seven months, three years, seven months. It is now the courts have determined that they are going to release Melissa Sandrone after serving only three and a half years of confinement after the 38 year term of confinement, presumably because Mental health officials have decided she's okay now, so we're going to let her go. Uh, Channel 12, big story about this. And they go out and they interview the guy that was you know, shot, Matt Trippy, And he goes through the, this entire situation, you know, talking about this. Um, so this is the questions that they ask him. They say, hey, the court found her not guilty by reason of mental disease. A judge committed her to a mental health facility for 38 years. Trippy was satisfied. You left the courtroom thinking what, the reporter asked. He says that I was never going to see her or hear from her until she's a very old person. However, a judge has now approved her release. The guy says, can you imagine getting a phone call from the district attorney and telling me that she's getting released, that the doctors say they can't do anything more for her? Uh, presumably they've decided she's cured, we fixed this, and he says, I was completely shocked, and now he's going public, and he's, you know, warning, you know, warning the public that, hey, this crazy woman who tried to murder me, who was supposed to be, 
you know, in a mental health facility for 38 years, they've now released him. The DA's office said that they've been against this all along. There's a hearing to discuss the conditions of her release. If a judge signs off on the plan, it's unclear how quickly the release could happen. Our number is 855-616-1620. That is the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. I don't know what this is, but it is not justice, at least not justice in my opinion. You have somebody who is dangerously mentally ill, who commits a very, very serious offense, for whom they say, oh, well, she couldn't appreciate the wrongfulness of her conduct. I'm sorry. I don't believe you get over that in three years. I I just flat out don't. I don't think the psychologists, I don't think the psychiatrists, I don't think they're good enough at being able to predict this sort of stuff. And I think that there needs to be a lot more accountability. It's fine if she's getting mental treatment, but this idea that, oh, you've committed these horrible crimes and you've done these horrible things and you've been, you know, we've determined that, you know, you've been in and out of psychiatric hospitals and you've been crazy, as I'm using that term in the layman's sense, for years and years and years, but now mysteriously we've done everything we can for you so here we're going to put you back out on the streets how crazy is that 855-616-1620 people are asking for the name of the judge who's okayed the release of this woman and i I, i'm working it's tough to figure that out uh the, the judge that originally sent her to the mental institution finding that you know she would lack she had mental disease or defects so she couldn't appreciate the right from wrong and the wrongfulness of her conduct when she shot this man in the back of the head. Um, that was Christopher D. I don't know if he's the one three and a half years presiding over the case. I would tend to doubt it, but I'm not positive. Here's what the victim says about this. He says, I think there are so many mass shootings in this country, and now we have someone that had three guns, an AK, all this ammunition that should have been in a prison or mental institution for 38 years is now going to be out living in a halfway house in Brown Deer. Must make all those of you in Brown Deer feel like um, you're wonderful and wonderful situation. I don't think we're any safer now because of this. I think the system is broke, to which I would say absolutely the, the system is broke. And and here's the, the, the problem, and it's the way, in my opinion, the system gets manipulated. You have psychiatrists and psychologists who say, okay, well, you know, this, this person, severe mental disease or defect, can't appreciate the wrongfulness of their conduct. Oh, okay, fine. So let's, let's put them in a mental facility, and that, that's, that's all well and good. But then, oh, now they're better. A couple years later, three years ago, you were so crazy, and I'm using that word in the layman's term, that you, you didn't know right from wrong, and you didn't understand that you, you know, those voices in your head telling you to shoot the innocent man in the back of the head, you couldn't control those, but now, only three and a half years later, you're cured! Here, we're going to put you out on the street! <laughs> um, Jeff, it's absolutely appalling how lack of treatment for there is for mental illness, absolutely not enough time. I think the mental system is crap. Well, I, I do... I think that there's just psychiatry is an art. It is not a science. Oh, okay, you're you're better now. Here we're going to put you back out on the street. Well, okay, all right. But three and a half years ago, you were so insane that you couldn't appreciate right from wrong when you shot somebody in the back of the head. I'm sorry. I just don't trust the psychiatrist to know what they're doing. Jeff, my suggestion would be for this woman to serve the rest of the time in prison now that she has been rehabilitated. That's Patrick. Unfortunately, that's that's the problem. The system doesn't allow that. Jeff, maybe she wasn't as mentally ill as they first thought. Well, that's a good point, too. So she shouldn't have been able to use that defense 
Now I think she's okay. She should serve the rest of her sentence in a regular prison. Again, unfortunately, that's not how it, it works because she never really even had a trial. The judge said, hey, you're so crazy. Again, I'm using that term in layman's terms. There's a technical legal thing, you know, unable to appreciate the mental def- mental defect or mental illness or deficiency such to such an extent that you couldn't appreciate the wrongfulness of your conduct or words to that effect i'm just lumping that into crazy but yet three and a half years ago you know you're you're so crazy that you can't even stand trial for something so that's fine we're going to get you the help you need we're going to put you off the streets and we're going to sentence you there for 38 years and mysteriously a couple years later you are better <laughs> um, Jeff, maybe it is the shrinks that should be institutionalized. Well, I will say this, and this goes back to another time in my life where, um, as, as a federal prosecutor for going on a dozen years, you, you'd see this come up sometimes, and I, I swear, you, you'd have some of the psychiatrists and psychologists who, no offense, but they were batty as bedbugs themselves. There's just no question uh, about this Jeff now that she's well how about they charge her with the original crime no they can't do that because the judge made a finding that at the time you committed the crime you were insane so you didn't have the intent to, to do it you didn't have what do they call it the mens re the, the criminal intent to be able to do that you couldn't appreciate the wrongfulness of your conduct so no it's it's kind of a it's a get out of jail card free with this Jeff, um, isn't this like the girls who tried to kill the woman, the girl in the woods, the Slender Man thing? No one stays in a mental facility for 38 years. No one. Okay, if we, all right, that that may be well and good. But if we were talking about, if we were talking about, oh, 13 or 15 years, I, I might have a different perspective than, than three years. Um, but that's the situation here. You know, um Three years. Jeff, they do the same thing to um, violent sexual offenders um, up here who's in this treatment facility. They are released to halfway houses that the taxpayers end up paying for. Um, Jeff, Jeff, being well enough to leave the mental health facility doesn't negate the original sentence. She should be transferred from the mental health facility to prison to serve out the rest of her sentence. No, like I say, that's just not the way this is going to end up working. Um, and, and again, I can, pers- can you imagine, I, I always try to personalize this. Can you imagine if you are the victim or the victim's family? And I give this man a lot of credit from MM Notice who, who went public with this, because I'm sure it's a difficult sort of story. You just imagine if this is your family member who you're, you're just at work. You're, you got your back turned, you're filling, you're putting air in a tire in a car, and all of a sudden some crazy woman pulls up and shoots you in the back of the head, smiles. I think she ended up shooting at or maybe hit another by somebody else who was trying to follow her, but you know, thankfully no serious sort of injuries, and then drives off. Hey, can you imagine that? And then you're told, well, don't worry, there's going to be all sorts of accountability. She needs help. That That's fine. But you never think that three years later she's going to be back out on the streets. But don't worry. We're going to have her under control. You know, we're going to put her in a in a halfway house and her conduct will be supervised. Yeah. How well has that worked out, at least in the past? So the hearing on this is supposed to be tomorrow to like finalize terms and this is one that we're going to follow somebody else says unbelievable it is absolutely unbelievable and it's it's another one of these situations where again i just 
I, I understand how the law operates. I, I get it. I understand the circumstances here. But it's to me why the, this whole mental health thing has always been a dodge. Because, again, it, it's just this idea. We can't tell when somebody – we can't really tell if somebody has a mental disease or defect which is so severe that renders them impossible to be able to control their conduct. We don't know that for sure. And and it's always just a matter of opinion. And then clearly then it's an opinion. Oh, three years later, she's fine. Well, we'll put her back out on the streets, but don't worry. We'll supervise her. Well, that's not much consolation to the victims. And we'll watch this case and see where it goes. But um, – a lot of people are starting to pay attention now, and I'm very glad the victim in this case was willing to go forward and talk about what I think from the perspective of many of us is certainly, whatever it is, it ain't justice. One of our texters says, Jeff, think back. If Charles Manson and his clan did their crimes today, they'd be out of prison in three and a half years, too. It's a different day. Well, you know, maybe if they did them in Milwaukee County, and I don't know about that. I'm just... Th- this. What's going on here is fundamentally, at least in my opinion, it is fundamentally wrong. And and it's you, you got to figure out a better way because somebody who shoots somebody in the back of the head knowingly and intentionally, I don't care, mental disease or illness or whatever, they shouldn't be able to be walking the streets three and a half years later, period. And that's precisely what is going to happen. If you want to see more of the details on the story I was just talking about, I, I just sent it out on Twitter. You can follow me on Twitter. It's at Jeff Wagner six twenty. But again, I, see, I I understand, I I understand how it works with mental disease or defect. To, to be guilty of crimes, you have to have a, a certain level of awareness and intent. There are people out there that are crazy, and I'm using the layman's term for that, and some psychiatrists might, you shouldn't say crazy, but I, I use that so we all understand what we're, we're talking about. It's, it is a very, very high standard, though, to say that you know anybody who, for example, commits a, a particularly a horrendous sort of crime, they're not all there. I mean, there, there's always some degree of, of psychotic behavior that's there, but that doesn't mean that you're so psychotic that you can't appreciate the consequences of your action and control can, can control yourself. Okay, that, that that's all well and good. You know, I take no position on whether this woman with a history of mental illness, apparently, lots of psychiatric treatments, whether she had that appropriate degree of awareness and intent to, to qualify you know, to, to actually be tried. Okay, that that's all well and good. All I'm saying is, if you're so crazy that you can't appreciate that it's wrong to go up and shoot somebody in the back of the head, and the judge says 38 years in confinement and in a mental facility, if you're so crazy, then in when you do this in 2018, I find it difficult to believe that suddenly, just a couple years later, now all of a sudden everything is wonderful, it's cured, and you know we don't have to worry about you doing this again. That's where I think the system is really screwed up. In any event, if you want to read more and see more about the details of this case I, i've got a link just follow me on twitter it's at jeff wagner 620 okay should he apologize after the supreme court's decision on roe versus wade abortion has become a, a very very hot button topic as as i mentioned you know, to start off this program yesterday a number of members uber liberal members of the squad staged a a political stunt event outside the supreme court where they ended up getting arrested arrested and, and aoc the leader of that group she pretended 
that she was being handcuffed. I've got a link to this. She pretended she was being handcuffed, and of course, everybody, they take pictures of this, and then they put it out on, on Twitter and stuff. Oh, look, she's been handcuffed, and she's being hauled away. Well, what happened is she was never handcuffed. You know, the Capitol Police came, and they escorted some of these people who were refusing to leave. They escorted them to an area under a shade tree, where they then brought them water, and they ended up, I think, giving most people like $50 tickets. And of course, AOC and some of the others that were there used this is an opportunity for a press conference but she was pretending to be to be handcuffed it was just a stunt because then people take these pictures and the pictures go up all over the internet etc but she was making her statement about how she feels about abortion in this country and it, it seems like every time you turn around somebody is is in fact making that statement and the loudest voices are clearly on the the pro-abortion pro-choice side you know my body my choice how dare anybody say this and very very vocal and it seems like you go to a, you go to a concert nowadays and chances are that that might be the message that the performer sends out when did that happen uh, uh the performer halsey um who was at summerfest i don't know if she did anything at summerfest but but yeah, i guess she did but before that she also you know went off on this riff about you know the my body by choice sort of thing and you know people walked out and then she got mad at that but it seems like everybody is expressing their opinions about you know the, the abortion issue particularly the people who are appalled that the supreme court made the decision to overturn roe versus wade which brings me to university of michigan football coach jim harbaugh now for the purpose of our discussion I understand if you are a Wisconsin football fan, you hate Jim Harbaugh. I get it, because he's coaching the, the Michigan Wolverines. And Jim Harbaugh also, well, he he can be a jerk from time to time. There's, there's just no question about that. Interestingly, one of his connections to Wisconsin is his sister, Joni, is the wife of former Marquette University basketball coach Tom Green. You know, um, I think Tom Crean is coaching in Georgia now. But um, Joni Crean used, used to be a listener of this program. She would call up every once in a while back when they were in Milwaukee. But in any event, so Jim Harbaugh is Catholic. Jim Harbaugh is also very, very, very much anti-abortion. And um, over, I guess it was like last week, um, he appeared at an event um, he was speaking at a Plymouth Right to Life event in Plymouth, Michigan, on Sunday. And, you know, um, a priest from the archdiocese delivered the keynote address. Um, and then Jim Harbaugh and his wife, you know, came up and gave what they called pro-life testimony. And, you know, they expressed their feeling about, you know, unborn children. This way he said, yes, there are conflicts between the legitimate rights of the mother and the rights of the unborn child. One resolution might involve incredible hardship for the mother, family, and society. Another results in the death of an unborn person. So he went on to articulate his his feelings. And you can agree with him or you can disagree with him. And And I understand that. Believe me, I, I get it that people are just all over the map when it comes to their positions on abortion, depending on just a, a lot of factors. But anyhow, he, he speaks at this anti-abortion event. He is being just absolutely ripped on the Internet and in many media sources for daring to come out and to offer what is a, it's a pro-life message. Now, his pro-life message 
is clearly in contrast with the feelings that uh, that a lot of people, particularly a lot of people in the sports media, end up having. And he's, he's getting ripped about this. There are people who are complaining to Michigan about how dare you employ this guy, and don't you understand that the policy of the University of Michigan is consistent with the law of Michigan, which allows for, like, abortions, that, you know, and, and they've they've already issued statements about how, you know, they're going to be, continue to, you know, understand the issues with abortion and things like that. And, and it's, it's kind of a pro-choice sort of message that they, they have. But he's just being ripped up and down for the different positions that he's taken, including, you know, columnists for like the Atlantic or people who write for ESPN and things like that, saying, you know, how how dare this guy express this sort of opinion? And a number of people are saying, hey, he is associated with the University of Michigan, and he's arguably the most prominent person when you think about the University of Michigan, for especially if it's a sports fan, can I say, hey, name somebody who's there currently, chances are you're going to name the football coach, right? So a number of people are saying he shouldn't have gone out and expressed his opinion in this fashion, and now that he has, he should apologize. Our number is 855-616-1620. That's the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. And again, from my perspective, this issue isn't, is he pro-choice? Is he pro-abortion? Is he pro-life? What, whatever, however you want to define that. It's if he expresses, yes, he's a state employee. Yes, he's a high-profile employee. But he, he is expressing his personal opinion at an event. Should he have to apologize for this? And if the situation were reversed, if he was one of the many professional um, sports figures who was coming out and denouncing the Supreme Court decision uh, overturning Roe versus Wade, would people feel the same way? Should Jim Harbaugh say he's sorry? 855-616-1620. We discuss. Eight five five six one six one six twenty, which is the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line for everybody out there. And again, I, this this is not a representation of 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 the underlying question of how do you feel about abortion. I recognize that let reasonable people have different opinions on this issue. But all this outrage that Jim Harbaugh, the head coach at the University of Michigan, all this outrage that he would dare to attend a pro life event on, on Sunday and express his pro-life position and now oh this is terrible you know the university of michigan they they don't endorse this and you know he should be disciplined and he should apologize to my response to that is pound sand i mean he's not speaking as a representative of the university of michigan he's not acting in his official capacity he is expressing his opinion as an individual and he has every right to do it and he shouldn't be badgered into feeling bad about that and again that's regardless of whether you agree with him or not Let's talk to Tim in West Dallas. Tim, you're on WTMJ. Hey, Jeff. Thanks for taking my call. Sure. I appreciate it. Sure. Uh, my, first, my first thing is um, opinions. Um, everybody's going to have a different opinion, but aren't we supposed to learn from each other about different opinions, whether I agree with them or not? Um, second thing is, is I'm a firm believer in God. Am I going to have to apologize for that? I mean, I, it, it's just the boggles my brain that this guy is literally being ripped for, for what he believes in. 
and nobody's talking about, uh, you know, all the good things he's done, like the charity work he's done and things like that. And personally, and this is my opinion, uh, the people who are causing such an uproar over this are, like you said, Colin Sand, and they're just closed-minded idiots. Well, I get it. Thanks. I mean, see, I look, I, th- this is a very volatile I- issue, and I, I you know, I, I've given my position on this. I'm, I'm, and whenever I do, I irritate people on both sides of the issue. I am, I am very moderate on, on this. I think there's a balancing. I think, you know, un- unborn children are unborn children. They're, they're babies. But I think that that doesn't mean that the, the mother doesn't have certain rights as well. And I think there's a balancing act. And I think where Wisconsin is ultimately going to end up, not today or tomorrow, but at some point in time, is somewhere where elective abortions are going to be allowed within the first 14 or 15 weeks. I think that's what Ron Johnson was hinting at when we talked about yesterday. But I, I don't know exactly how, how we get there. But I think that's where we're going to end up. And I understand that's not going to satisfy everybody. But, I mean, I I don't. I am not offended when I see people loudly proclaim my body, my choice, and I want to do this. And, I, and I'm also not offended by people who make the argument that they feel that, you know, that there's a life from the time of conception. I, that's These are legitimately held opinions based on people's experience, based on people's beliefs or whatever. But I don't think people should have to apologize for them. I don't think you're a bad person if you, uh, again, are, are militantly pro-choice. I don't think you're a bad person if you're militantly, militantly pro-life. It's just people perceive this particular cultural issue in a, in a certain fashion. Jeff, um has I think Harbaugh has every right to express his thoughts, and at the same time, he has to understand that he will face the consequences of doing so. It's good and bad. Said, this is now weird to say, but I'm pro-Harbaugh now. <laughs> you know, it's like, oh, you know, here here you go. I'm, I'm pro-Harbaugh. Jeff, does freedom of speech only apply if the opinion fits my narrative? Yeah, see, that's, that's the very good idea, the, the whole point here. I mean, old idea, idea of freedom of speech, which says that the government shouldn't do anything to interfere with your, your rights, that, that, that idea has been to protect unpopular speech. Now, I don't know how unpopular that really is. I mean, I, I understand if you follow the mainstream media and stuff that you would think that, that everybody in the world thinks that um, overturning Roe versus Wade was, you know, some absolute outrage. I don't know that that really tracks with reality because, like I've said before, I think there, there's about 10% of people who feel very strongly on either side of that issue, and then there's that, that vast middle, 70 to 80%, who are, are somewhere in the middle of that. So you've got the situation. Um, Jeff, this is just like the Jack Del Rio situation. He has a different view than the woke media. I'm with both of them. They have a right to personal opinion. Well, you, you can tell that this, I don't think this is going to end anytime soon. And, and Jim Harbaugh has chosen to make himself controversial by voicing his opinion. And and by voicing his opinion in a public way, I, I guess he leaves himself open to criticism from the folks who end up disagreeing with him. But should he apologize for his legitimately held beliefs? My answer would be heck no.